Hello, everyone, to another episode of Health Tech with Purpose podcast. And today we have Eli Goldberg, VP of Data and Innovation at Belkis. Hi, Eli. How are you today? Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. In fact, you know, the great work you're doing and especially 2024 when everybody is thinking about data and innovation. I think this is uh, one of the best conversations I'm really looking forward to. So thanks again, welcoming you and tell us more how, what's going on in data. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think last year was the year that generative AI really took the world by storm. Um, I think everyone who hasn't been using some type of data science or doing some type of data science, machine learning, AI, there's like this nebulous word cloud of association between those terms. Um, but, you know, I think people really started to be pretty switched on about involving data science. And actually, it really helped decrease the resistance within institutions in general to dedicating to doing things with data. Um, I, I also think it was also met with a lot of layoffs and restructuring and things. It was a pretty tough time in the market. Um, so for those of you who are entrepreneurial in mind and looking for venture or PE capital, um, it was kind of a wild time and probably will remain a wild time through 2024. But uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. So I mean, I can give you a bit of background on what I'm doing. I'm, I'm happy to just follow your lead. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, you know, while I jumped on the data thing right away, because uh, it's just all over uh, our thoughts nowadays. Uh, but uh, uh, let me take a step back and uh, uh, tell us more about your journey, uh, Eli, like, you know, especially your role at Bell and then your perspective, how they have shaped up um you know when you started um you know like uh, you know the first jobs that you did to where you are today so i know that you know you had married of experiences you have a long career that uh, i know about and you know from where from there to now you know how things have evolved so tell us more. yeah i'll try to be brief i think i, I think I can, I can talk about this for for a while my dad would say it's my favorite talk back is to talk about myself but um I actually started, so I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and um, I went to undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I did geological engineering, geology, and geophysics there. So I loved being outside. I loved the engineering and the, the physics aspects of geology. And then, um, you know, right after undergrad, I was interviewing for like oil and gas companies. And then I said, you know what, like, I want to be green. I want to, you know, I, I, I want to be part of the environmental movement. So I work for a small environmental consultancy without realizing that small consultancies typically work for like large oil and gas companies, large, you know, small environmental companies. So um, my first project right out of undergrad was actually doing an environmental drilling job in Angola. And I spent some time in Angola um, and had a couple of wild and dangerous experiences and ended up saying to myself, hey, why do I do this kind of work? Like, why is it that I'm, you know, in these areas that, um, you know, at that time had just sort of, you know, they had a civil war. It was like a few years past the civil war. It was, there was still landmines, unexploded ordinances on site. And I just sort of had this moment where I was like, look, 
I'm I'm sad that these people are like habituated to to things that I think are are hard. Is there something that I can do about that? Right. So I I kind of pivoted from thinking about all of the cool environmental and geological work to thinking about the people and the structure and society. And so, um, you know, I think I did what any like 20 something kid who doesn't really know what they're doing um, does. And that's like go to grad school. So, you know, I, because I had those dangerous experiences, I wanted to go somewhere that was really safe. So I ended up going to Switzerland, which I thought was like this. I felt like I was like the most dangerous person there. Um, that's not true, obviously, but it felt like that at the time. And so, I, you know, I, when I was in Switzerland, I did a master's in environmental engineering, uh, urban water management and sustainability. I learned a lot about why Switzerland is so beautiful and why and how they continue to keep it that way. Um, and in between my master's and PhD, I started sort of dreaming up this idea for a company. So one thing that I didn't mention that I'll mention now is that I have a critical chronic lung disease called cystic fibrosis. So it's genetic, it's terminal, um, and there's been some remarkable medicines these days that have really helped things. I mean, I feel like I'm effectively cured these days, but I certainly wasn't back then. And so, you know, I always had to do medical device treatments day and night. So two, two and a half hours of my day was spent, you know, inhaling medicines. And so I took that time and just started to think about, you know, what are the, what are the ways that I could sort of link what I was doing with these medical devices in the way that I was feeling, right? I would always be like, well, do I, do I want to go out or do I want to, you know, do this breathing treatment, right? Like I would have to make these like fundamental decisions between complying to the medical regimen that, that I'd been prescribed, that had been designed to keep me healthy and then like living my life. And so I ended up creating these little sensors that, um, sat on, at the time, dumb medical devices and made them smarter. And that was a very new idea at that time. We were messing around with Zigbee. It was like some of the first versions of Bluetooth. And, um, you know, I hooked up with some really smart folks at the electrical engineering department at DTH in Zurich. And we made a company. And, um, you know, I, I grew the company a bit, got a, you know, sort of like a few million in, in grants from the Swiss government and developed eventually this system that allowed me to predict exacerbations or when I was going to feel bad based on my prior device use and how I was feeling. And so, you know, during my PhD, that was during my PhD, you know, I was using machine learning during my PhD to reconcile transport models, um, which is a totally seemingly different sphere of a world, but effectively the way that we describe things moving in the human body and environment are these linked essentially mass balances or differential equations. And um, when things get really, really, really small at like the nano, the virus, the sub, you know, the, the sub 100 nanometer scale, um, the physics start to get really weird. And the models that people were using to understand the transport just like weren't working. So I was using in my sort of academic life, these big machine learning models to train and identify and understand the transport of nanomaterials in the human body and environment. And then in this sort of entrepreneurial sphere, I was turning around and using some of the same technologies to predict exacerbations. And that sort of was like the lightning bolt moment for me. The company, you know, 
I was not the world's greatest CEO. I tried really hard. I learned a tremendous amount, um, but it was not the world's greatest CEO for sure. And actually, I remember my my cousin who um, had become very wealthy in real estate and who had invested, you know, and he was giving me some like coaching and advice. And he wrote out effectively the what he called the parade of Eli's horribles, which was like a list of the reasons why I was like not the world's greatest CEO and whatnot. Um, and at the time I was like, I was kind of like hurt by it, but actually I used that document after the business was wrapped up to think about my next pathway. So from that business, I actually tried to sell my company to Novartis, which is a big pharma company. Novartis, Novartis said, look, your tech is like too early, um, but we like you. So they turned around and said, look, can you translate some early stage med tech from the lab to the clinic with us? which was awesome. So, you know, I transitioned fairly smoothly from being an entrepreneur to being like an intrapreneur in a really big pharma company. Um, but looking at that parade of horribles, I was already, I was also like still missing some core competencies as like a CEO. And one of them was like people management skills. So from, from Novartis, I went to CVS Aetna where I built a team that started out like at, as like three people and I think ballooned up to almost 40 at one point. Um, and so, you know, I think at that point, you know, I had a nearly $10 million P&L. Um, you know, I probably had more executive authority than most CEOs do in the U.S. I really learned how to manage at scale and, you know, how to sophisticatedly and articulately work with a within a large company. Um, and from there, you know, I, I built some of the world's largest data science-based clinical products that were really used to target people with critical chronic diseases, um, people with um, congestive heart failure and asthma and COPD, as well as people who were undergoing big journeys in, in women's health, maternity and, and fertility journeys that were really complicated and really sore spots for the insurance industry. And so, um, you know, I learned a tremendous amount there and, you know, really developed a large network of world-class data scientists and engineers and ML ops folks, et cetera. And from there, I actually decided to make a jump into back into the sort of med tech world. So there was a company called Current Health, which at the time was a, was a pure Scottish company. And their pitch to me was really great. It sounded a lot like my first company. It was like, hey, we have this remote monitoring platform. We're trying to understand how to make these things smarter. And we need to understand the fundamental economics that go along with making great models. So you can't just be good in the healthcare world at the engineering and the math and the science, that's great. You really need to understand the fundamental care economy and the economics around how your technology is used, who's gonna use it, how it's used. Um, and even if in that case you can bridge the like last mile of healthcare and really get into the home, you still have to stuff to make the economics work, right? So you know if sending people tech and having shifting the site of where care is delivered from in clinic to at home isn't profitable, if there's no ROI for um, you know the the provider facilities, then they can't do it. And without an ROI, nobody gets anything, right? So data science in that way is not just used for fancy targeting. It's also used to bend business cases. Um, but Current Health then became Current Health, the Best Buy company. So, you know, I, I got to see the sort of inside workings of an acquisition um, and a big one. So the company was acquired for something like $400 million. And, um, you know, at the VP level, 
there's a lot, right? Like you, you're you're part of a small team of folks, and I really learned a lot. And I have a ton of respect um, for Chris and Stu and the folks at the Current Health that really led through that. It was a really fun and, and remarkable time for me. Um, you know, post acquisition, I started branching out a bit and joining boards of companies, um, and I joined a, a couple of a couple of boards. Two companies in particular. One company is an Australian company called Unleash. Um, and they have an absolutely remarkable product and have kind of cracked the code on positive behavior change. So using brands to incentivize, um, you know, positive behavior change in a really just remarkable way. Um, and then I joined a company called Bell Cares, where I first started out on the board. And Bell Cares <clears throat> is um, a really, really special company. And that's where I am now. So I, you know, I love the company so much. I love the team so much that I transitioned from being an advisor, being a board member to, to being a full-time um, member of the team. Um, I'll give you 10 seconds on Bell and then I'll, you know, there's a lot of questions I'm sure we want to dive into, but Bell Cares started out as like in-home spa services, right? Like think uber for like hair and nails and and stuff and it just it feels like hey eli like why are you associated with that like feels weird um but the company journey has been wild so i wasn't there during that time but you know they ran the company as like uber for hair and nails for a bit and then they realized look the only service that people seem to be consuming is foot care and the only people who seem to be consuming it are in medicare and so they wait, you know, like a light bulb went off and they were like, wait, do we actually have an in-home spa services, sort of Uber for hair and nails, or do we have a clinical and non-clinical in-home care program? And so they pivoted and they were able to land a, a, a few big payer clients. And the service is pretty awesome. They take nail technicians who are often in like predatory nail salons and things. And... Um, we give them a clinical preceptorship. We teach them how to deliver clinical and non-clinical care. And, um, and many times we're giving them their first nine to five job. We make them real W-2 employees. We give them insurance if they want it. Great. Awesome. And um, we send them into patients' homes and it's really remarkable. We've done a quarter million visits in the last couple of years. So anyway, so that's the big long journey for me, how I ended up at Bell and some of the other fun things I've been doing. That's so amazing. That's so amazing. And I think, uh, uh, you know, especially building something, uh, you know, ground up, seeing it evolve. And uh, like you said, 250,000 uh, visits, that's that's quite a number. <laughs> so pat on the back for creating that impact. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm coming in in like the fourth season of this TV show, but... Um we're I, I'm I'm there's a lot of fun stuff that we're doing we can talk about it but yeah I've talked too much already so I'll let you I'll let you go sure so um so Eli like um, you know let's uh, deep dive further into more of your role which is the data and innovation so uh you know for a company like Bellcare, how does data and innovation um you know fits in and yeah. you know what the role what is the impact of it when you uh, create what I can imagine like data-driven insights for the company. How do they look and how do you process that and so on? Tell us more. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I think you'll find that as a, you know, like PhD level data scientist, like I, I care very deeply about a, a few things. One of them is credible measurement. Mm -hmm. So if you can't prove that your product is working, then it doesn't work. 
And there's a relationship between the science associated with measurement and the degree to which clients say yes to us as a function of what they see. So in other words, we, a large part of the responsibility of my group is to shift the company towards a really like value-based future in which we're providing our service to people who really need it. And in doing so, we drive value for members, but also for the payers that provide the cash that pays us for the service. And so in doing that, we're, from a data science perspective, we're really, really heavily involved in measurement. So we run causal control experiments, you know, we get ingestion, we ingest, you know, payer claims and we analyze that and, um, you know, credibly measure the degree to which literally between treatment and control, our product works or doesn't work in some cases, right? You know, it doesn't work for everybody. Not every jug works for everyone in the same way. So, um, you know, there's a huge focus on that sort of measurement aspect. Um, there's a large focus on the relationship between measurement and targeting. So you can imagine the product doesn't work for everyone. Why does it work for the people for whom it works? Good question. And what is it about those people that we can observe that allows us to target and identify others who may be similar, who may value or be valuable similarly in a similar fashion? So we're parlaying that into um, you know, a lot of advanced targeting. The targeting models use a variety of data that we collect. So we send these nail technicians in home with an app. The app takes pictures of their feet. We have longitudinal claims that we ingest. We run them through a, a series of clinical and non-clinical care. They get like a spa quality foot care service. And you know we do um, peripheral neuropathy tests. We do things like timed up and go. We're looking for social determinants of health. Um, you know, we're inspecting wounds. There's a lot that really goes into it. And what that allows us to do is to use that information and, and really identify what are the unique aspects about these people? What do, what do we need to look for? We also have about a half a million longitudinal clinical claims backed foot mm -hmm. photos. These are some of the nastiest foot photos you've ever seen in your life. Like they're, these people really need our service. And, um, you know, we, but we have this remarkable asset. We have this remarkable relationship between the clinical claims, like what was going on before and how much it cost, um, what we see in the visit and, and members can get this service up to, you know, once a month. And then, you know, we take pictures while we're there and then we understand what happens afterwards, both the clinical claims, you know, we do care management, we align care for them. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And it allows us to create some really remarkable image-based models and approaches. So from the data and innovation side, it's both from a business perspective, hey, who's valuable? How do we measure it? Is the product working? How well? And then we're using that information to, to be able to say, how do, we, how do we find these people? Can we just have a, uh, an app that takes a photo of your, your, you know, your lower legs and help us understand your risk factors for, let's say, diabetic ulcers or, you know, skin skin wounds or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a lot of interesting things that we're doing that you might not think, hey, these, you know, they, these people send nail technicians into a home, like what's going on? But like the, the data that we're generating and using here is probably one of the finest, most complete image and clinical claims and outcomes data sets that I've ever seen. And I've seen a bunch. I've been at the, you know, 
been you know in the Fortune 60 for the past 10 years. Like I've seen a lot, so it's pretty remarkable from a data and innovation side. What you know, the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. We're they... also yeah. One other thing, we're, we're also experimenting um, with generative AI, just like everybody else. But the purpose of our visits is to have our nail technicians interact with members. And so we're also developing models and testing out. We're not sure if this is going to catch on, but, but maybe it will. But we want to do everything that we can to allow our technicians to form a connection with members. And right now, um, they do a great job at it, but they're also on an app, right? So we're thinking, OK, cool, aside from taking photos, and um, you know a couple of like miscellaneous details that app probably need to be entered into the app regardless. Can we record those visits and use generative AI to automatically fill out all the questionnaires and all the information that typically takes a while for the technician to do? The technician may choose not to do it during the visit. They may choose to do it in the car, but then there's maybe a loss of fidelity or something. So to be able to use some, some generative AI and do some speech text and then analyze that text and, and fill out the, the framework for information that we have in the app in an automated way could really be another valuable component. So we're really thinking of some interesting stuff and um, yeah, experimenting actively. Right, right. No, I think, um, you know, the way you uh, explain it, I think these small wins basically lead to those bigger wins. So, you know, once you take care of the smaller uh, things and you have someone really focused and you really have a plan around all the beautiful things that data can bring in, I think uh, then, you know, a lot more of that puzzle gets solved as compared to, uh, you know, waiting for the magic to happen. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of magic. When machine learning and AI is done well, it looks like magic. But like behind the scenes is this like spaghetti of services and features that are that are tricky. So definitely. So Eli, uh, tell us more about uh, Belkis model. Like I was able to catch uh, that uh, though it started as a more uh, nail and hair service, then you know as the third market fit was found and um, there was this realization uh, about the foot care um, uh, you know value that was getting created especially for the medicaid people um, from there to now like how has been the technological journey for the platform so i think you know at one uh, horizon um, you were pretty much more of a, uh, you know, a system that uh, that is more like a Uber, uh, a more consumer driven product, basically. And now you are more like a health tech product. So what has been that transition and the technological changes that you had to build into the platform or as a company? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think the app and the technology started off really simply, right? Like the company kind of has all the problems yeah. of like an Uber or Lyft in one way, right? Like we have a traveling salesman problem. We have members and the shifting demand and we have only so many supply of like technicians that we can send them per day. So there's definitely a really, I would say like Amazonian like style, like service or logistics side of the business. And very early on, like that is the side of the business that really was sort of optimized. Um, now pivoting into the healthcare business, it's harder. 
right? So if the value of an appointment in terms of cash in the door is fixed, which it is, but the value to a client is not. And if our goal is to, for every dollar that's given to us, demonstrate that we're giving a dollar back to our clients in med cost savings or, or revenue or whatever, then um, there are some members who are worth, you know, in terms of that med cost savings amount, like a lot more. Um, every member is valuable. And really, it's kind of beautiful the way that the technicians and the, the staff care about people. Like our goal is really to make sure that everybody gets exactly what they need. But from a payer perspective, some people are worth a few hundred bucks and some people are worth 10,000, you know? And so um, if for us to be able to continue to provide the service to everybody or as many people as we can, we need to be able to identify those people and really put our thumb on the scale and say, these people get a lot of visits. They really, really need Bell. This other person needs Bell, but maybe they need less Bell. And so, um, you know, the, the how hard we try at like aspect in terms of how to engage them, we're deeply diving deep in how we're framing journeys and campaigns to drive demand and engage members. Um, and it's, it's very different in the, in the contracts in which we're going at risk. So in which we're really putting our dollars at risk and saying, look, we're going to serve all these people, but we're also going to demonstrate value. And if we measure and we don't win, we pay you back. Like that's a very risky proposition, like very literally. And so the, the technology has changed dramatically from sort of traditional service to real data science, targeting, journey mapping, campaigning, like optimization, personalization kind of stuff, which is the natural path, I think, for most companies in the space. Right. And how did you curate the app to, um, you know, create that home nurse experience? What were some of those changes that you were, um, you mentioned a bit about it, like I was able to hear, like how you have, of course, you know, created the ecosystem by training the people and, uh, um, you know, creating that whole frictionless journey. But uh, any um, pointers that you want to point out that how that whole home nurse experience gets curated today on the app? Yeah, uh, they're, they're not nurses, they're, they're nail technicians, but, but same, it's the same thing. Um, the, the experience is number one. That's the first thing, is that like a lot is done to preserve that relationship. And um, I think that's probably the number one thing is focus on the service, right? Like there's a lot of companies who are really great at logistics. Like we're not gonna be Amazon for logistics. Like we were, we're never gonna solve the traveling salesman problem better, <clears throat> better than a team that's dedicated to solving that problem. So I think the other big piece of advice I would give is think about your company and its value in terms of what's the real secret sauce? You know, mm -hmm. like our secret sauce is the visit and how we target for the visit and the value associated with the way we train and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so designing the, the product to underpin that is important. Um, you know, we have, um, we have a fairly simple app infrastructure and landscape. You know, we have an iPhone app that's like mobile native and we have a sort of management portal in the back that helps us curate demand and understand supply and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think that's actually a pretty simple way to do it as sort of to think about the, like the application for the back office as a window into the eyes of the business in a very basic way. 
and focus a lot on making the experience for members and for for us, for a field force, for the technicians, like really smooth. Um, in terms of technologies, I think we've gone through a lot of different iterations. I have a lot of respect for the CTO. Um, he, you know, he came on board just after me, and he's really been honing and refining the landscape of technologies, thinking about what we're building in those non, let's say, core to the business value. It is core to the business value, but not not core to our business uniqueness spots. You know, he's like Lego bricking these services and technologies. So standing on the shoulders of giants, of others who've done this really well in the space and not building everything internally, right? If you build it internally, then you got to manage it. And there's just like a lot of other stuff that goes along with it. Um, I think the other thing that I, I will say is, I think AWS and a lot of the cloud tech out there is, remarkable. So if you're a leader who's hasn't touched base with this stuff in a couple of years, you're going to be blown away about how well this stuff works. And it takes a little bit of configuration and Amazon is really like self-aggrandizing and like the way they talk about their own stuff is like kind of annoying, but the stuff um, <clears throat> tends to work and tends to work well. So it's been really interesting to dive back in and think about how to Lego bricks and core services and um, you know, really go from zero to one in a new capability really fast instead of, cool, how do we build it? Well, we need full stack developers and then we need to build this. Like, no, we can use existing pre-built blocks and tie these things together to make a, a pretty little bow. So anyway, it's been interesting from a tech development perspective. Okay. Great, so cool. So, uh... Yeah, I think, um, you know, since um, we are running out of time, uh, so Eli, I would like to switch gears towards more uh, of the future. So tell us more about what are the things in place <clears throat> personally in 2024 and then your predictions, um, you know, especially around data and AI and in healthcare for 2024. Yeah, good, good, good question. For me personally, I think just like staying healthy <clears throat> is good. I just had COVID. It's my second time. Not that fun. I, pro tip, don't get it. Um, but just like staying healthy and trying to stay a bit more balanced in terms of, you know, I think we all worked our, our nails to the bone during the pandemic and the world is opening up, but also then everybody gets sick and it contracts. And so we're going through this like harmonic ability, you know, where, where, um, you know, I, I just feel like I want to get out there more and I want to conserve my health. And I think just in general, being healthier, very, very blase, like 2024 goal. That's um, my <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, it's important. I mean, I'm still like coughing stuff up in terms of like predictions. I think the capital markets are going to remain pretty tight. Um, I think we'll start to see the first you know, hundred million billion dollar market cap companies that are under five people um, because of AI. And I think maybe maybe not this year, maybe next year or the year after, I think we'll see our first maybe trillion dollar market cap company that's a single person. I, I hope that takes 10 years because there's dramatic implications to like universal right. basic income and what it means to like be a contributing member of society and relating GDP to like labor resource. There's like a bunch of stuff that gets unhinged. Even but, if money is created, how do you bring purpose of life? Like, you know, in the current setting, 
people know their role and they have a purpose to fulfill it. Totally, totally. So, you know, I think that like finding purpose is important. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing some learning. I think that this will be the year that um, a lot of leaders across the industry really hit the books and say, you know what, like, I better get smart on this stuff. And if I don't, I'm going to be left in the dirt. And so, you know, I, I really think that we'll see a resurgence of education, a resurgence of, of maybe humility in this space. You know, there's a lot of the leadership level at these big companies that are, you know, I mean, they've, they've got these big roles, they've got a good track record, but it's unclear if that track record is true talent or luck. Like, I'm, I'm you know, maybe that's a spicy thing to say, but the reality is, is, I think this is going to be the year or, you know, the, the start of many where the leadership level really needs to dive deep, you know, and, mm -hmm. and learn about data and figure out what it means for their institution and more than just lip service. Um, I, I think that we're going to find politically some, some, some interesting things. Um, regardless of like which side of the aisle you're on in the U S like the US a lot politics, of elections, uh -huh, a lot of elections. 2024 is going to be a big year and um you know I'm, I'm excited to see what happens i hope we make a smart move in america one for kindness and peace and justice um but then again america is a very wild place in some ways and um anything can happen so i'm 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 excited to see i hope it's a, a first you know or second big step in a, in a positive direction for the the safety and stability of humanity um well said <laughs> that's that's a good vision to have yeah but i mean <laughs> we we hope that we we all you know move towards that yeah great yeah. so thank you so much um that has been a very interesting conversation and uh, i believe especially for people in data and in innovation they have a lot to take up from here Thank you so much, Eli, for sharing um, these thoughts. My pleasure.